Welcome to CAA Live, the Council of American Ambassadors Foreign Affairs Podcast. My name is Keisha King, and I'm the Council's Communications Manager. This episode features a presentation on Russia with Dr. Stephen Sustanovich at the Council's Potpourri of Diplomacy Conference on November 7, 2018. This session was moderated by CAA Vice President Ambassador Philip Hughes. Enjoy! We're privileged today to have with us uh, one of uh, our most distinguished uh, scholars and uh, policy experts on Russia, Steve Sostanovich. Uh, I had the privilege of working with Steve in the Reagan White House uh, in the mid-1980s uh, when Steve was director for uh, Soviet affairs then uh, on our staff. Steve came to us in the Reagan administration from, well, he was actually part of the Reagan administration at the State Department, uh, where he was a member of the policy planning staff, having come to that from an earlier academic career. Uh, Steve has been, I think it's fair to say, an in-and-outer in government, uh, having uh, served in the Reagan administration. He was then at both the Center for Strategic and International Studies and the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, again working on Russian and newly independent states issues until he came back to the State Department as the ambassador at large for newly independent states uh, affairs. Um, since that assignment, he has been back in a sense where he started or in one of the academic in one of the academic institutions where he started back at Columbia University as the Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Professor of International Diplomacy and as a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. Steve, the floor is yours, and we are here to benefit from your expertise. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here today. Uh, always good to have uh, Amtrak uh, arriving on time. It's not the only way they do things, but they are capable of, of doing it, and it makes you wonder why they don't do it all the time. Seems so easy, right? Um, you know, being reminded of people who were uh, in the academy and then in government uh, uh, calls to mind uh, my old boss, Senator Moynihan's famous uh, crack when he was first running for, uh, for the Senate and uh, Jim Buckley referred to him as Professor Moynihan. And he sa Moynihan said, the mudslinging has begun. <laughs> um, I want to talk about Russian-American relations uh, today. Um, and I'll do it quickly since I've discovered people often have uh, their own strong opinions on the subject, or at least a lot of questions. I can't be as uh, technical and uh, uh, blow you away with uh, new technologies you know little about as the previous speaker. Uh, but we might get into some of that uh, if uh, people want to talk about cybersecurity. But I warn you, I, I, it's not my field. The place I want to start with is this. Here we are two years into the Trump administration. And I would say 
uh, the Trump administration's approach to Russian-American relations stands out from every American president of the past 30 years, but not necessarily in the way you might think. Every American president of the past 30 years, until Donald Trump, has in the first two years of his presidency actually done quite a lot to develop the Russian-American relationship and at the end of two years could give you a significant string uh, of achievements. Uh, and I was thinking about this uh, in, uh, you know, as this comparison came to mind, and I thought, well, would that really be true? How, how, what could one say about all the other presidents? And actually, one could say a lot. Uh, George H.W. Bush, in the first two years of his presidency, um, managed the peaceful collapse of the Soviet Empire in Eastern Europe, German reunification, uh, got Soviet support for the uh, coalition against Saddam Hussein in the first Persian Gulf War. In the first two years of the Clinton administration, uh, President Clinton oversaw the creation, we used to laugh at it at the time, the Gorchernemurden Commission, uh, which was a kind of mechanism for addressing in a regular way at a high level, but not always with presidential involvement, uh, issues of, of cooperative possibility or disagreement between uh, the US and Russia also oversaw uh, Soviet troop withdrawals from Germany and the Baltic states, uh, denuclearization of Ukraine and Kazakhstan. George W. Bush, in the first two years of his administration uh, with the Russians, got a new arms control treaty, uh, upgrades of conventional, uh, of conventional council, um, a consultative council, sorry, uh, in NATO uh, for, um, discussions between Russia and uh, the United States on European security, uh, recognition of Russia as a market economy, uh, and a cooperative response in the run-up to the Iraq uh, war, that is through the end of 2002. President Obama, in the first two years of his administration, um, got a, negotiated an even more significant uh, a strategic Arms Control Treaty, cooperation on uh, American resupply of our forces in Afghanistan, um, sanctions on Iran. Uh, and with all of this, uh, kind of regular, productive, working summits, uh, usually at least once in one of the, in the capitals of one of the, uh, of the, uh, of the two countries. What do we see when we look at the Trump administration? Well, you're all snickering. I mean, I, I, I think the answer is, well, you know, it, it depends on your perspective. But most people agree Russian-American relations are kind of at the lowest point that they've been since the end of the Cold War. And, uh, you know, President Trump himself sometimes to explain and defend his policy to Russia says, I've been tougher on Russia than anybody. Okay, but that's not the point of comparison. We're actually interested in results. And the results are you have basically 
nothing to show for this, uh, for this period. And I think it's worth asking why. And I propose to kind of go briefly through a couple of possible explanations and then give you, because uh, I think they're all true, uh, but they don't capture what's really happening in Russian-American relations, which is a real transformation of the way in which the two sides view each other and the relevance of each side to the other's most important international foreign policy, national security concerns. You could say, well, there hasn't been any progress in Russian-American relations because of Russian meddling in the 2016 election definitely an important uh, factor uh, that has been, has shadowed uh, the Trump administration's policies from the get-go. But you'd have to add to that, you know, which I think is, is really true, that the president had a way of, of dealing with that problem uh, by staking out a very firm position on interference which he only has recently come to, and he doesn't really enunciate it, it's his advisors and staff do. And that is, you know, interference is absolutely unacceptable, will not benefit any country that tries it, and the United States will not allow it to happen. Simple. And in fact, many of the setbacks that President Trump has experienced in Russian-American relations, a loss of control, have to do with the way in which he has the alternative formula that he's come up with. When he met Putin for the first time in 2017, what did he say about meddling in our uh, elections? He didn't say what I said. He said, well, Putin said it didn't happen. He gave a very powerful case about why it didn't happen. And the result was what? The Congress imposed new sanctions which the, over which the, the president did not have control. In 2018, Putin and Trump met again. And what was the president's formula? The same. Even though he saw what a catastrophe this produced the year before. In fact, it was worse. Uh, he, you know, he, he sort of explicitly took Putin's side against uh, American intelligence community, losing a kind of basic credibility. And of all the presidents that I mentioned earlier, all of the presidents of the last 30 years, none of them in their, certainly in their first two years, and I'd say throughout, retained a kind of basic credibility that they could deal effectively uh, with the Russians. So you have here inexperience and personal incompetence and maybe guilt, uh, a bad conscience at least, or, or at least complete insecurity about how to handle this issue. And that's a big part of what's happened. But I don't think it's enough to explain. Um, you could say, well, the accumulation of problem issues in Russian-American relations was so great and much bigger than any of those previous presidents had faced. And I think that's true, too. Uh, you know, you had uh, the crisis over Ukraine <coughs> in addition to uh, the, uh, the the problems of meddling. You've had Russian violations of arms control treaties. You had a seeming disagreement about uh, conflicts over Syria, uh, the two countries acting in some ways across purposes. Um, 
a, a, a this compounded by sort of personal uh, dif difficulties between Putin and, and American presidents. And I would say all that's true. And yet, President Trump expressed an interest in addressing those specific problem issues. Uh, and you could have imagined uh, a formula for, and that's why they appointed a, uh, a, a special envoy on Ukraine, a formula for kind of putting that issue uh, behind the two sides, which would have had to involve a significant Russian climb down, but, you know, not absolutely inconceivable. Cooperation on counterterrorism. The administration has been interested in, uh, in, uh, in, in some kind of effort to draw Russia away from Iran. They keep talking about this as a major goal of Russian-American relations. And sometimes they even say they're interested in drawing Russia away from China. <clears throat> so why haven't any of those things materialized? Even if you allow for, which I know is a lot, the insecurity and personal incompetence and lack of uh, real domestic maneuvering room. Well, I think that, you know, the truth is neither Trump nor Putin is, in fact, an accomplished deal maker. Uh, this is a kind of myth about both of them. Uh, you know, that they're, you know, people always say about Putin that he's, you know, he's a very transactional guy, you know, I'll do this if you'll do that. Not really true. Putin never makes any really any important deals uh, of uh, of that sort. Of very very rarely. Uh, and I'd remind you that the uh, the the earlier period of Bush forty three good good relationship with Putin was very early in Putin's term, and the reset under President Obama was when Putin was not being acting as president uh, at all. Uh, there are, uh, there's been very little real effort to kind of sit down and talk turkey about any of these uh, issues that, uh, that I've referred to. And in fact, uh, although the domestic context in both countries, uh, you know, raises obstacles to it, I, I think you have to uh, you have to say that actually you've had a pretty inexperienced administration here that has not had a real sense of what kind of agenda it wanted to pursue uh, with the Russians. Uh, you know, the president from time to time says, oh, I want to do this, I want to do that. But it has rarely happened, and it is, um, and, I, and so I think there's, there's not really been a kind of coherent strategy for how to address this second factor that I mentioned, which is the problems are really hard. Uh, they, they don't lend themselves to, uh, to easy uh, solutions. And, in, and to complicate that, you've got some people in the administration who are, for their own ideological reasons or catering to kind of congressional opposition to uh, serious relationship with the Russians are sort of taking tough, uh, tough positions uh, toward Russia. The Treasury actually has a kind of enthusiasm for Russian sanctions against Russia that kind of takes me by surprise. But I mean, they've really been active. I mean, people who thought the Trump administration was not going to act in good faith about sanctions, 
They did not reckon with the Department of the Treasury. Add to this John Bolton, who, you know, has never seen an arms control agreement that he liked. Uh, and so, you know, you've, there it's not so surprising that this agenda of problem solving has not actually moved anywhere. So I think all that's true. But I'd add a third factor, which I think is important to understand. And, and that has to do with uh, the, what I think of as the diminishing relevance of Russian-American relations to each side. Uh, actually, we're kind of past the big two era. Uh, when both President Putin and President Trump think about what their top priority issues are and whether or not they can actually address them successfully by a cooperative approach to dealing with the other one of them? I, I think the answer tends to be, mm, I don't know whether that's really the, the way I want to go. In the we've sort of talked about some of the Russian, I mean the American ambivalence here. Uh, but I would say on the Russian side, there's actually a growing sense that, you know, relations with the United States are not the kind of central folk, strategic focus that they used to be. Um, for uh, 50 years and more, uh, more, uh, the preoccupation of Soviet foreign policy and now Russian foreign policy has been a, the creation of a relationship with the United States that reflects their status, their uh, ability to, you know, contribute to or, or block uh, the resolution of almost all important international they're, that isn't their focus anymore. They, you know, if, if the Americans say to them, what, we, we would like you to diminish your connections to Iran. We want to give you incentives for that. What's the Russian reaction to that? Iran has been the indispensable partner for the Russians in their entire Middle East uh, activities of the past uh, several years, and really the the essential ingredient of a big success. You're, there's no way you could, the Russians would choose a relationship with the United States over Iran because they would be choosing to sacrifice their own success in the Middle East. With China, you know, when American officials say their interest is to draw the in Russia away from China, I say, you know, Russia has a policy toward China. It's called appeasement, uh, and it's not open to rethinking. The idea of having the Russians on our side against the Chinese doesn't register with the Russians. Um, so there is a kind of uh, altered set of strategic preoccupations that are uh, shaping Russian uh, policy, uh, and I think you see that in Europe too. Uh, if the Russians' view of uh, their relations with Europe has changed fundamentally. Uh, the, the Russians have had, Putin has had many opportunities to be a kind of substitute Angela Merkel in, uh, that'll seem like an odd idea to you, but you know, a sort of senior statesman in Europe 
<laughs> people think of as kind of reliable, not a crazy person. You can deal with them, deal with a lot of the big issues of energy and trade and, uh, you know, political upheaval, and, you know, you can count on the guy. It's not the relationship that Putin has chosen. So I would say, in this picture, Russia and the United States just loom less large in each other's strategic calculations. And the result is uh, that even if you uh, have a, a, a different personality uh, in either side running the policy, you may end up with a policy, with a, with a relationship that is much less robust, much less cooperative, much less in the mode that we got used to uh, for many decades. Uh, this is a downsized uh, relationship, I would say, in all likelihood. You know, Obama once said, once described Russia as a declining regional power. The Russians took this rather badly. Uh, although they, they didn't pay attention to why he was saying it. He was ex saying it as a reason for why he didn't need to do more to beat up on the Russians. But I think it's actually kind of true as a description of how the Russians, of the kinds of calculations that shape the Russian approach to relations with us. What we have to think about is what on our side uh, give, you know, gives us incentives or opportunities or leverage to change that relationship, and do we really want to do it? With that, maybe I should stop, and uh, you'll have questions that you want to raise. Thanks. Uh, Ambassador Cobb. What is Russia's highest priority? What is Russia's strategy for uh, its, let's say, next decade? Well, you know, if we ask that, I think we tend to ask that question about other countries as though there's a kind of single answer. Uh, whereas if we asked it about ourselves, we would recognize there isn't a single answer. There are people who have different views, diff people of different parties, different institutions, different just general political or strategic orientations. Um, I think um, Putin doesn't do broad concept, you know, strategic conceptions all that well. But I would say his view is to preserve the, what he thinks he has restored for Russia, which is great power status, uh, you know, a kind of influence that he thinks 20 years ago it didn't have. 20 years ago was the big financial crash uh, for the Russians. And, you know, Putin can say we've come a long way since then. And I want to hold on to that. That would be one thing. It Im implies economic development, um, it implies a set of international relationships. Um, others would say of Putin, and they do say this, um, you know, the way you've gone at this, uh, you may think uh, you're um, lifting Russia's prominence and influence, but actually, you've isolated Russia. 
uh, you've let a stupid little issue like you know the a postage stamp part of Eastern Ukraine sour our relations with all of all of Europe. What's the point of that? Uh, you have staked an awful lot on a military presence in Syria that you've got no concept for how to get out of and that depends on a cooperation with Ukraine, I mean with Iran, that, you know, has its kind of problematic sides for us in trying to develop relations with all the other countries of the region. Why are we doing that? With China, you have basically decided to be China's junior partner. Okay, but you know, the rest of the world is shaping a kind of secret, unspoken containment coalition against China, uh, which is not anything overt, but with a message to the Chinese that if you do anything crazy, we're all gonna be together. And shouldn't we be part of that? Russians will tell you. And incidentally, when they say that, their anti-Chinese hatred comes to the fore. So you've got a series of alternatives for Russia that don't get a lot of public debate because the only way to debate them is to say, Putin has led us into a dead end. And that doesn't, uh, doesn't sit well with the president and his associates. Uh, but I think clearly that those issues are gonna come to the surface in the course of the next 10 years. Putin can only be president under the current constitution for another six. Ambassador Oliver and then Ambassador Tao, and I think that will probably be all that we have time for. Okay, and I'll be quicker. Um, thank you. I don't know if you were here earlier to hear the, our speaker on Germany. I, w um, I didn't hear that. Okay, well, what he said, Amtrak the wasn't that fast. <laughs> the issue was on energy. Yeah. Specifically, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. And what he said was that there were many Germans very sympathetic to Russia, that they saw this as an economic opportunity, not as a political one, that they weren't worried about the politics, were not worried about the kind of um, uh, periodic disruption to the pipelines that the Russians tended to do when uh, issues got uh, too difficult to deal with. How do you see this, and how do you see uh, the Russian um, policy towards providing energy to Europe, the heart of Europe, yeah. and the kind of potential blackmail uh, right. opportunities, shall we say, it might prevail? It's a great question, a really great question, important issue. And you know, when Philip and I were working in the, uh, in the NSC 30 years ago and more, this was one of the big questions that preoccupied President Reagan. He wanted to block that kind of Soviet leverage over energy supplies to Western Europe. President Trump has said something relatively similar uh, in a you know, much nastier and more counterproductive way. He said, uh, the Germans are completely dependent on Russian energy and so they'll never do anything. You know, forgetting that Chancellor Merkel has been the pivotal European leader in pushing back against the Russians in the past four years. Um, the Trump policy has been to rag on the Europeans for energy dependence, but not to really do anything about it. For example, they could have imposed sanctions on Nord Stream 2 and they decided not to because it would create too much friction with the Europeans. 
and they haven't had much in the way of other ideas, you know, like, well, okay, you can have Nord Stream 2, but what else are we going to do to try to limit uh, your dependence on, on Russian energy supplies? What else are we going to do to try to protect Ukraine from being squeezed by the Russians once, uh, uh, you know, Nord Stream 2 is, uh, is built? And there has, you know, to do that, you'd have to have a, a productive relationship going and a dialogue with the Europeans about all these issues. And that doesn't exist. Uh, I think you could make some progress on this issue. And let me just add one final thought to this, which I think is important. And I don't know how you factor it into policy exactly, but it's something that my friends who are real energy experts think about. The changing energy markets uh, in both gas and oil have meant that Russian ability to exercise political influence through energy supplies is less than it used to be because you've seen how when you, the Russians have wanted to use it, it's kind of backfired because all of the their customers have actually found alternatives. So I think that it, what's ironic about uh, the European-Russian energy relationship is that they actually import more gas than they used to and more a larger share of their total gas, and yet the political consequences of it are less than you, would, than you might have expected because people have options. And so the changing in energy markets mean there isn't the same kind of geopolitical leverage that you might have had from it. Uh, quickly, Ambassador Towell. How smart is uh, the president of Russia? Is How able is he, besides being narcissistic and riding around the horse with his shirt off? Um, he was a KGB lieutenant colonel never made colonel, and in a place that wasn't very important. So is he just a narcissist, like many of us are, or is he really able person? And we learn from hearing about Turkey and Saudi Arabia that everybody taps and films everything. Of course, we do, too. Uh, do they, had, he, had they filmed and tapped the current president of the United States of America when he was galloping around Russia a decade ago. Oh man, there are a lot. There are a lot of questions in that. Um, a friend of mine who has spent more time with Putin than I have, although I was in several long meetings with with Putin early in his tenure. Uh, a friend of mine who's seen him more recently says he's one of the smartest people I have ever met which took me by surprise, took another friend uh, by surprise because he said, you know, speaking of our other friend, he said, he knows us. Like, why does he think Putin is smarter than <laughs> we are? <laughs> uh, Putin is, is, is a capable guy. Uh, I'd add two things to this, and then I'll answer your question about, uh, I'll tap dance about your question about filming. Um, I, I, 
he has cultivated a, an image of himself as the decisive tough guy. Uh, my Russian friends who know him say actually one of the things that's most distinctive about Putin is how indecisive he is. Uh, he, can't, he can't decide, he can't decide, he can't decide, he puts things off, and then he decides impulsively. Uh, not necessarily what you'd want, but that's what they say. These are people who've dealt with him over many years. Um, some of the, uh, this is the second thing, the flamboyance, the bare-chested on horseback, I, I think is entirely a media creation. Putin, in my experience, was one of the most colorless, sort of just dull, really, dull people uh, <laughs> among Russian politicians that I've met. There are many of them who are much more fun than he. I remember a little, uh, a little vignette in the Kremlin when P Clinton was there in 2000, visited Moscow for several days. And Putin had a little jazz summit, a little jazz, mini jazz concert in the Kremlin for him. And, uh, it was with a fabulous saxophonist named Igor Bootman, by the way. If you ever have a chance to come across Igor Bootman stuff, great, great saxophonist. And Clinton was there. He and Putin were in the front row. And Clinton was so into it. And he's tapping his feet, and he's jiving, and really enjoying it. And Putin could not figure out how to relate to it. He obviously. <laughs> You know, he, was, he tried tapping his feet for a while, not, not on the beat at all, <laughs> you know, just completely, you know, no connection to the social, to this personal situation that you had there. Uh, so I think a lot of this drama, the, all of the, the scuba diving, uh, you know, the, the piloting the plane with the birds across Siberia, you know, they, there's, some, there's kind of marketing genius in it, but honestly, it's just, I think it's all a fabrication. That was Dr. Stephen Sustanovich at the Council of American Ambassadors Potpourri of Diplomacy Conference. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to CAA Live on iTunes or Google Play and leave us a review. Tweet us your thoughts on this episode and tag us at AMER Ambassadors with the hashtag CAA Live.